This episode is sponsored by Free Market Kids. Join the league of families who are transforming family time into unforgettable Bitcoin learning experiences. With our Hoddle Up Bitcoin mining board game, you're not just playing. You're building bridges, creating memories, and unlocking the brilliance of the future one block at a time. They have achieved a very precise formula of getting people to stay in the game. So they balance the sense of challenge. They immediately give you feedback if you do something right. If you fail, they don't penalize you. If you can learn from that and help find a way that your kids love learning and that they love the challenge and they feel like it's interesting and it's something they can do and they're not afraid of failing over and over again trying to figure it out, then that's a, that's a, that's a pretty good set of guidelines. Hey everybody, welcome to Bitcoin Homeschoolers. Today we're going to talk to you about a book that I think if I had to write a book about our own homeschooling experience and all the lessons learned, it would be very similar to this book. We're going to highlight some parts of the book for you. There are some, a few, few areas that we disagree with, so we'll discuss that so that we can give you a pretty good overview of this book as a resource for your homeschooling journey. Yes, and the name of the book is The Learning Game by Anna Lorena Fabriga. And this is not meant for homeschoolers. This is really, this is really about parenting. And the teacher was actually an, a teacher who quit. And the author. The author, I'm sorry. The author was a teacher, and then she, she quit, and she collected some great observations, and then she actually takes the time to go through and make actionable recommendations based on the things that she has. So the place that I would propose we start on this is we take just a couple of seconds to talk about, she, she goes into the beginning of the book about some of the things that are wrong with our current school system. I think it's worthwhile just to highlight a couple of those, even though if you're listening to this podcast, you are probably already convinced of that. So that's where I recommend we start, Tali, is let's talk about some of the things that are wrong with the current system. Okay, I just want to touch on that very briefly because I don't want to be a dead horse. I'm assuming that all of our listeners who are taking the time to listen to this podcast have already decided that the current system is not for them and that they are actively pursuing the possibility of homeschooling their own kids. So let's cover it really briefly, though. So, so one of the things is that schools are geared towards compliance. And this is one of those things that has come up. I know we've talked about this with other interviews we've done. It really goes back to the Prussian time when they were trying to basically have soldiers that would that would listen to orders in in the army and in the industrial time it was those that would basically get a factory job and and do that it was there's a lot of things that we we do where we punish failure so if you look at the way we do grading kids are basically taught to fear mistakes and fear failure there's very little time for free play to just go out and pursue the things that you you want to do and there's a huge amount of of focus and a lot of unintended incentives around test taking so if you are trying to learn answers to remember on a test as opposed to learn how to solve problems as a student that's not the best for you but it, it goes beyond that for teachers if your job depends on how well your students do on standardized tests you're going to spend a lot of time on that and schools get funding that way. So 
Um, bottom line is it's a lot about trying to fit in versus thinking out of the box. And it's less really about the student's development and preparing them for success in the, in the world. So those are some of the takeaways that I took from an introduction to what's wrong with the current system. I want to highlight something that she talked about, which is the myth of the learning style. Uh, what, basically what she said was that people don't learn with one learning style. They don't just, they're not just visual learners or they're not just audio learners. And I understand where she's coming from, but I do believe that understanding learning style, or I would say the dominant learning style is helpful. So an example I like to share is our kids, because of what I read about the learning style, I really looked for it. I really paid attention. And of course, the best way to learn is to involve all your senses. But there are definitely people who tend toward the need to hear material rather than see material or the need to touch, you know, that tactile kind of learning, learning style versus just the reading learning style. So it's just a slight nuance, but I believe that it is it is a good thing for parents to pay attention to the learning style. It is, of course, best to offer experiences for all the senses when you're teaching something. That's uh, one of the reasons why the unit study approach is so popular, but it is also very, very laborious for the teacher. So yeah, pay attention to the, your child's learning style. Understand that there's going to be a dominant one and just try to teach to expose the concepts in as many senses as possible. I'd like to, to move on to uh, to another item. And we're, what we're going to do is essentially, folks, we're going to go through some of the highlights of the different chapters. We're not going to literally give a summary of the entire book. We're just going to pull out pieces that we think are worthwhile to discuss. I do highly recommend this book for, even if you're not homeschooling, but I think for homeschoolers and, and looking at parenting, it, it is good. But um, the best, it's a short book and you can get into all these things. So I forgot to say that up, uh, up front. So one of the things that I wanted to pull out to, to discuss was the idea of kids being, being in a situation where they have to solve problems for them, for themselves. And where she, where the author was going with this is to try to develop a love of learning. Tali and I we love to learn. We, we love books. We have books all through the house. We love going to new places. And so I, we kind of take it for granted that we're going to teach that to our, our kids. But a huge part of that is not us telling them, here's what, here's what you do in this situation. And it's so precise, they have to follow the exact recipe for it. So you have a lot of passion around this one. The, the one that I'll start it off with the one we talked about just before we got on the before we hit record and that it was our oldest son when he was maybe six or seven, he really, really wanted to mow the lawn because he, he had seen me mow the lawn and he would go out there. And, and so one of the things we could have done is said, no, you're not old enough. Or we could have said, okay, we'll start it for you and we'll do this. But we, we essentially put the problem out there for him. We say, listen, if you are strong enough, this was one of those old mowers where you actually had to, you actually had to pull the string to get the, the, to get it started. It wasn't a, it wasn't just a key or a, a, a button and man, did he have to struggle with it. He would go out there in all kinds of contorted positions, trying to figure out how to solve the problem of starting a lawnmower. And we were there, we made sure that he wasn't going to do anything where he could physically get himself 
in danger, but we gave him enough space to try and go and, and figure it out. And it was interesting because the other kids were out there too. They're, they're taking notes and they're trying, not like notes, but they're observing and giving their feedback to them. It's not maybe the best example, but I, um, it is a memory of that just in everyday life, how we let the kids have a chance to try and do something for themselves and have to figure it out. I think it goes even beyond that because if I had been the one standing there with him instead of you, after he tried three times, maybe maximum five times to start the motor, if he wasn't able to, I would have said one of two things. I would have said, okay, maybe we wait and come back later, you know, when you get bigger or stronger or something. Or I would have said, can I give you a hand? But I wasn't standing out there, lucky for, for him. Scott was standing there, and Scott is very, very good at allowing the kids to struggle at something with no time limit. And so we have a video of him trying over and over and over again. At one point, he propped his foot up on top of the the lawnmower to give himself more perch so that he can pull it. And after a very, very, very long time of trying, over and over and over again, nobody saying anything to him about maybe you should wait, maybe you're too small, maybe this is not going to work. Nobody said that. His siblings were standing around just waiting for it to happen. Scott gave him the space. And the pride that he showed on his face when finally the motor started, that's what we don't give the kids or give the kids to the experience, the opportunity to experience if we cut it short because we don't like watching them fail. Yeah. Let's, let's take this a little further because I think we're, we're going really deep on that one example. In the book, one of the things the author does is she says, give projects or allow the kids to choose project that they feel personal, they, they feel personally strong about. So the example is go build a tree house. I know that when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time in the woods and this is, this is before you had the big, you know, super, uh, hardware stores. And we would, we would save up money from chores to go and buy boxes of nails from Ace Hardware or something. And then we'd go out and try to build tree houses and, and fail miserably. But it was a, you can do something a little bit more formal than that, where there is something where their, their homework is to do something that's fun where they, they learn to love, learn. that's the thing, to love learning. And a recent example, at least maybe a, a few months back, Preston Pish on his, uh, his podcast mentioned he was basically using AI to help create or build a dog feeder, an automatic dog feeder for his dog. And it was everything from using AI to, to figure out what kind of screens you needed, what kind of power you needed, the the physical mechanics and design of it. So, so think about that. If your project for your kid, your homework assignment is build an automatic dog feeder. Like that's a pretty cool assignment. I think I would have really enjoyed that. And now you're learning about physics. You're learning about electronics. You're probably learning some programming and you're learning how to use AI because that was, that was kind of the structure that he, that he had with that. He was doing it with his son, but you could also do it as a homework assignment and just say, hey, this is your assignment is to do X, whatever X is. So the, the bottom line of all that is 
you can you can let kids choose things or give them things where it's fun and they can learn to to like the feeling of learning how to do things. Anything else, Tali, on this subject? No, let's move on to the next point. The author talks about the power of video games. Now, this is a section that I agree with some things that she said, and I really disagree with some other things she said. Her main point is gamification is a really wonderful way of motivating a student to stay on task in that they have the perfect balance between something that is challenging enough, but not so hard that it discourages you. So that's what the goal of the video game is to have you stay in the game, right? So they they have achieved a very precise formula of getting people to stay in the game. So they balance the sense of challenge. They immediately give you feedback if you do something right. If you fail, they don't penalize you. So all of these things are really wonderful. Of course, then you're talking also about the possibility of becoming so entrenched in video game that you lose track of time and it becomes an obsession or an addiction. One thing I disagree with in this case when she's talking about how teachers can learn from video games is the reason video games can allow failures to happen over and over again and not penalize and not give, I would just say, not give a negative feedback to the player or, in, or student is because it's just a program. There is no human emotion involved. And so I don't necessarily agree that it is something that is, that is easily applicable in real life teaching situation because you're assuming that a parent, in this case, because we're talking about homeschooling, a parent can remain unemotional and continually watch failure or let the child or the student experience failure without generating some kind of emotional response. And even if you don't speak it, even if you don't react physically, all children are very sensitive to the feelings of their parents. They are going to get that feedback regardless. And so, yes, it would be nice to gamify some lessons or subjects, but I just don't think that it's realistic to ask a human being to provide the same kind of environment as video games. Yeah, see, I didn't take it so literal. I, I, I took it as, like, there is something with a video game that the people who make them understand and are able to draw people in, and they, they keep coming back. And so being on that edge of just being outside of what you're able to do. And you know, if you try again and try again and try again, and then you have to pursue the knowledge to get through whatever the level is, or uh, you can tell I'm not a video game guy, but whatever those awards are uh, that you can say you, you've, you have a certain level of power or a skin or whatever it is that they do in the games. And the, the ability that if you don't do well, you just try again. And you try again and try again. And part of the lesson on that is there are certain types of things. When people say gamification, a lot of times, and she points this out in the book, they're just doing pointification. So you, you, you take your little stickers out and you track how many days in a row you did something or, or something like that. And they work in the short term. But people who get into video games, they stay with it for, a, for hours and hours a day and they can take it to an extreme. So 
I didn't take it so literally. I think it was more of, look, how do you keep, if, if it's something's too easy and it's not a challenge, it's boring. So if a video game is boring, people stop playing it. But on the other hand, you've got to just be in that, that sweet Goldilocks place where there's just enough where you're really close to doing the next thing. And so that might just be choosing what the next project is or the next assignment. But there's a, there's, they don't know how to do it yet. They have to go through a struggle, but they, they don't feel overwhelmed because if it's just too difficult, then they just give up. And so I thought that was a, that was a neat framework to think about as you're trying to put together and guide your, your kids through whatever subject um, of that. And she talked about a few things. She talked about flow, which is kind of like what I was just talking about with that, that balance. And it requires that you get, that you get feedback and that the challenges have to be interesting and you can't, you can't just penalize failure. So that if you try to replicate the public school system at home and you're saying failure is bad, you, here are all your mistakes you made. You are reinforcing this fear of failure. And so learning from video games and why they can, they do so well to draw people in. If you can learn from that and help find a way that your kids love learning and that they love the challenge and they feel like it's interesting and it's something they can do and they're not afraid of failing over and over again, trying to figure it out, then that's a, that's a, that's a pretty good set of guidelines to, to, to follow. And again, I'm, I'm not saying you learn everything from a video game. I just thought it was a very interesting framework that she was using and saying, this can help us think through how we structure lessons. So, so we disagree a little bit on that one, but, um, well, I want to relate the, um, the similarities between the stuff that she talked about with video games and the Montessori teaching method. So the Montessori teaching method basically says, let the experience give your child the feedback. So for example, when we see young children trying to do the shape puzzle, right? That's something very common that, that people would get for their kids, two, three years old. They're trying to fit a shape into another shape that of the same, same kind, right? And if, if we put it down and the child's interacting with the puzzle, the feedback for the failure, which is that it doesn't fit, is enough. We don't have to sit there and go, uh oh, that didn't work. The child knows. And the reward is when they try over and over and over and over again and finally get it through. But what we see a lot is the parents would hold the child's hand and turn the block a certain way to make sure it fit. Now, there's, of course, two ways to look at it. One is you, some kids do get very frustrated and they give up and they, they walk away, right? And the second is you can show them one time and then once they know how to do it, then later on when they're trying different ways of turning the shape, they know what they're aiming for. However, the Montessori system says specifically the teachers are not to give the feedback, whether it's negative or positive. They don't give praise to children when they do something well because the reward is in, in the accomplishment of the task itself. And so in that sense, I think it is somewhat similar to video gaming 
but it's just not something that's easily applicable to all situations. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the application, I, I agree, could be hard. All right. So the bottom line is you read, read the chapter yourself and you can kind of decide how to apply that, that or uh, those lessons or not. The, the next section in the game of uh, the, the book that I wanted to pull out is about skin in the game. And they talked about this for, from two perspectives, one for kids and one for parents. And for kids, it was making sure that they could deal and wrestle with consequences when things did not go right. And, um, she, she talked about making lessons more exciting, making them more memorable and to make them as much as possible things that might be related to real life decisions, because in real life, you're going to have, you're going to have to wrestle with consequences for parents. It was the skin in the game is not just trusting to schools or a teacher or someone else that your kids are, are going to learn where, where she was going with this is. And I guess the bigger picture of this is trying you're, if you're trying to set your kid up for success in life, developing kids that are anti-fragile is a really interesting concept and I think is a worthwhile thing. She talks about creating a generation of really risk-averse, really risk-averse people. They, they were overprotected in schools and going back to not having to deal with the consequences or the failures. And essentially, to you need to give your you need to let them experience moderate levels of stress. And some of the examples she listed out were like rejections or setbacks, disappointments. They need to have freedom to, to fail. And then the idea of this is that you would build up uh, an ability. You would have resilience. You would build up confidence and perseverance. I really like the idea of developing anti-fragile kids. The other thing about about raising kids that are anti-fragile is to teach them early on that they have some control over how they perceive life and in so doing change their emotional reaction to it. So for example, when my kids were really young, I was reading a bunch and they were, there was a school of thought that's basically saying, let kids be kids, let them, let them respect their personality style and don't force them to do anything they don't want to. And I was leaning towards that until I came across a, an author with a, with an opposite point of view. And it was specifically talking about shy kids. So the situation he, he uh, described was if we have a toddler, I would say just a toddler and they're, you're introducing the toddler to say a family member that they haven't met before obviously a safe a safe adult not just any stranger but a safe adult and let's say the child is shy and you say hey say say hi to uncle tom and the child buries buries her head in your arm and no she's ignoring she's ignoring her uncle one way to look at it is okay that's just her personality let her go and don't force her to do anything but the author that I, I've read, it's, um, the name of the book is Awaken the Genius in Your Child. And he said, the thing is, while we do respect that children have different personalities, there are also social skills that we should teach them because in this world, nobody lives alone. We, people need people. And 
learning social skills is a very, very important part of, of growing up. So if your child is unwilling to say hi to a safe adult, say in this case, Uncle Tom, then it is your job to say, hey, just wave, like something small, like just wave or just say a little, like whisper a hi or something, but teach, start teaching them social skills. So I think that's a, that's a great um, perspective to look at raising anti-fragile kids because yes, we respect that they are different. They're, they're outgoing kids that everybody's their, their friends, strangers, people they know, it doesn't matter. And then there are kids that are shy, but across the board, everybody needs social skills. So if you teach them social skills, then they have the confidence to go out and meet and interact with a different life situations. But if you allow them to hide because they tend towards shyness, then it's really a great service you're doing to allow them to not develop those very important social skills. So I, that one of the things that comes to mind while you're talking about that I think might help people listening to this, because a lot of this is like abstract. This lady's talking about anti-fragile kids and we're talking about that. Maybe you could give a little story about Rejection Proof and the, the book itself and what you asked the, the, the kids to do with that, specifically to put them in a situation with a moderate level of stress. Right, so Rejection Proof was written by a guy who started a vlog just to kind of cheer himself up. And he was really afraid of rejection and decided in order to cure himself, he was going to go on as the most outrageous things of strangers and therefore expect to be rejected, experience a rejection and understand after a while that it's not going to kill you. And so he came up with all these crazy scenarios and his videos became viral. He wrote a book and I had our, all of our kids listen to the book on audible. So one of the things that I did with the kids, this is, uh, they, when they were in middle school, high school was we would go into social situations. Like we would go into a Panera bread or something. And I would say, I want you to look around and I want you to pay attention to the social interactions. And then let's pick a chapter, like a scenario that this guy describes in rejection proof. And let's say if, let's see if we can reenact it and just be okay with rejection because that's, isn't that the number one fear after the fear of public speaking is just people saying no, something like that. I don't know. It's a, it's a major fear. And so if you, if you teach the kids early on how to be okay with it, because they're going to meet rejection in life one way or another, somewhere, somehow. And if they learn early on that it's not going to kill them, then you take away the fear and the, they become more confident people. Where I'm trying to go with that is I'm trying to lead you to tell a story. All right, one example though. Okay, so <laughs> so we went into Five Guys Burger because in the book, he talked about how he went up to, he was at a fast food restaurant. I'm not sure if it was actually Five Guys, but he was at a fast food restaurant and he figured if we have free refills for drinks, maybe he'll just ask the outrageous thing to have re free refills for a burger. So we went to Five Guys, and for those of you who haven't been there, it's it's a really nice burger place, but the burgers are much more expensive than a regular, like a McDonald's or Burger King. So I don't know if that's relevant. You can take that out. Um, but anyway, so we, we sat there. I sat there with the kids. I'm like, who's going to go up there and ask for a free refill on her, on your burger? And our daughter, our third child, decided she was going to go do it. 
So she went up to the guy at the counter and she said, can I have a refill? He goes, sure. What did you drink? And she goes, no, I had a burger, a cheeseburger. And he just looked at her and just smiled. He didn't say yes. He didn't say no, but that was fine. I think their exercise was, was that she had the guts to ask an outrageous question. She knew the, she knew she was going to get rejected. Mm-hmm. The question was outrageous enough, but you were safe in that environment because nothing bad is going to happen. You just literally have to work through, I guess, the embarrassment of asking something that you know is going to be rejected. And to me, that that example is it's it's relatively innocent. No one gets hurt with it. And the kids look back and they have these memories now of these different scenarios that they were in where they had to go out and not had to. But that was part of the the class or the 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 subject anyways, to to pick one of the things the guy had done and to to replicate it. So to ask for something, you know, and, you know, the book, the thing that made him go viral was he went in and asked somebody for something outrageous and they said, yes. <laughs> so you never know. Right. But, so, but I do, I do want to point out a nuance because I, we actually discussed this when we first came across the book several years ago, which is if you're asking someone a question that you expect a rejection for, that's much different than if you're asking someone a question that you're hoping they would say yes. So it's a different mentality, but I, I but don't, the, the, I, to me, it's a, it's a, it's a matter of getting out there. If you're, if you're in a, a negotiation, you're in, you're in a corporate work environment and you, you don't want, you don't want to voice your opinion or you, it's the, it's the dating scene. The kids are in college now and, and they want to be able to talk to others to have enough courage, those type of things, they need to get out there and experience those moderate levels of stress. Their heart rate gets, goes up. They're not in any kind of physical danger. And then sometimes the person says, no, do you want to go out? No, <laughs> right? That's a, you have an opportunity to fail and it's okay. And you pick yourself up, you realize it's okay. And now your confidence is stronger and now you're more resilient and you can, you are a, a stronger, more anti-fragile person because of it. So anyways, we, we kind of beat that up, but, um, we do, but I just want to ask something else. So there's a new trend uh, of people blaming others for microaggression. And that's a very, that's, that's a, almost like a generally accepted thing that everybody has to tiptoe around. You know, he looked at me funny. He used the wrong word to describe me. He referred to me as something else. Like you give so much power away to people when you allow them to hurt you with micro like not even over aggression but like micro aggression and so if you train your kids up to be okay with like deliberately getting rejected deliberately experiencing somebody saying no to you and survive it and know that oh it's not a huge deal then things like the microaggression just will just roll off their back and you just end up going to being a happier person overall. So that's, I think, something that's really important to think about. Yeah. So intentionally putting them in those mildly stressful situations and uh, that's, it's a good thing. Let's go on to the next, the, the next subject that I wanted to pull out from the book. She spends a, a period of time, she spends at least a chapter, maybe more on character development. And she specifically goes into Stoics and she cites people, famous people in history like George Washington, who studied this, um, this, this philosophy that goes back a couple thousand years, talks about the virtues and moral, 
moral character, and she she specifically goes through, for from a Stoic perspective, courage, temperance, justice, and and wisdom. Where she was going with that though is is we need to teach character, and I I agree with that. She said one of the ways to do this was to keep a virtue journal where people could talk about what they've observed, and another thing was you could read stories about stoicism or other things about virtues. The example that Tali and I were talking about just before we hit record was there's a book that came out a few decades ago by Dr. Bill Bennett called The Book of Virtues. This is something where you could have your kids read it or you could read it yourself. So The Book of Virtues has short stories in there of famous people and stories from their life that highlights uh, different virtues. And it's the book is organized by the virtue you want to focus on. And it's the stories are short enough, one to two pages, that you can easily talk about one every night before they go to sleep. So that they get to think, you know, to chew on stories of virtues while they sleep rather than something else, you know, whatever they stroll, scroll through Instagram or they see in, on Disney movies or something. So very deliberate, very short. You can read it together. You can take turns reading it. It's, it was a really good, good resource for us. Okay. Another example I think we should give just, I mean, there's a developing character is this could be house chores, for example, and having a responsibility to take out the trash or, or doing the dishes, things like that. I think the Lee Corps, which is a junior ROTC program that incorporates biblical principles in their program really emphasizes leadership, but not just in a way that is philosophical or theoretical. It's absolutely practiced from the, from day one. I mean, as soon as you go in there and achieve your first level badge, I think it's called badge or first level, whatever's they immediately are given responsibilities and it is through experience that they develop their character, not through lectures, not through talking about it, you know. So the Lee Corps happened to be something in our area, but you you have the Air, Civil Air Patrol, you have other JRT programs, you also have things like the Scouts. And I know in a previous episode, we talked about trail life and things like that. There are things that are not traditional classes like math and reading, where you can involve children in activities that are going to have something with them that involve character, where they're going to have to be in positions and they're going to have to do things. And the the great thing about the junior ROTC is it it puts them in, it, it puts kids into leadership roles where they have to get kids to do other things, you know, to get them ready for an outing or something like that. So the idea of developing character seems very obvious when you when you say it but if you are designing a homeschooling curriculum for for your own your own kids it is it is something i think you have to be deliberate about because there's so many other things that you're thinking about with so many other subjects and activities but the character can be done with the reading time it can be done with these other with these other types of things so I, the takeaway for me i i 
I really like the point of what the author, where she was going with this. This is not something that's done in traditional schools. It's something that absolutely should be part of a curriculum and one of the huge benefits of homeschooling. All right, so just to, to, to wrap up this uh, a little bit, the, one of the, the last things to talk about for, for what we're going to talk about today anyways it is the author brings up this idea of having a range of knowledge as opposed to specific types of knowledge and that successful people really have to be able to deal with ambiguity and change today in order to, to continue to succeed. They have to know how to solve problems and as opposed to just memorizing uh, facts. This is, this is kind of overlapping with other things that we've talked about earlier in the episode. Maybe we just wrap up with final thoughts on the book. Actually, I think we should talk about her recommendation of, um, what's it called? Thinking and bets. Okay, let's go. Yeah, let's go for it then. Teaching kids how to think. There are, of course, different philosophies on that. For example, the classical education would say there are three stages to a child's learning from K to 12 divided into three specific sections. They do not believe that we should ask kids to analyze when they know nothing. And therefore the first one third of their schooling is just on memorizing facts. And then the second stage is a combination of memorizing more facts and then starting to analyze a little bit. And then the third stage is when they fully jump into analyzing and learning critical thinking, etc. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, they, you can start to ask kids what they think right away from the very, very beginning. And obviously there are pros and cons to both, but being deliberate, whether you go one way or the other is really important because I don't believe that we should assume kids will learn how to think in the most optimal way. If you don't give them some kind of structure or some kind of guide or lead into it. All right. Well, I'll, I'll say it's slightly different. I, the idea of being able to think and not just regurgitate to me relates back to the initial points that she made in the book about some of the things wrong with the current system. And one of the things is this over-reliance on test scores and the incentives it has for the teachers and teachers and the, the incentives it has for administrators to the point where it's, it's so much more about being able to do to go to the test. I was talking about teaching kids how to think instead of just leaving it up to chance how they end up thinking. All right. So from a mental framework standpoint, one of the things is dealing with ambiguity and things are not black and white. And I think one of the things that she did well is she, she specifically, she's always, the, the author does a good job of bringing out specific resources for each of the chapters that she goes into. And one of those was a thing called Thinking in Bets. For you, for those not familiar, I recommend this book. It's called Thinking in Bets. The name of the author was Annie Duke, who was a professional poker champion. And then she went on to do other things with consulting and in business. And it basically is about getting comfortable with uncertainty and how do you make better decisions in situations when you you have uncertainty. And she talks a lot about sports. She talks about business and she basically says you can apply these in, in real life. So from a resource standpoint, being able as a, as a subject, give kids a framework for how to make decisions, how to deal with ambiguity. 
That's a very valuable thing. And it was great that the author brought that up in the context of how to teach kids how to think. And if things are not black and white, then, you know, welcome to the real world. Things are not always going to be black and white. And uh, that is a just even listening to the Audible book, I think, would be enough as a homework assignment to help open up a kid's mind. Um, but I personally really enjoy the fact that the author dedicated time to to talk about that in in the section on thinking <clears throat> or teaching kids to think, rather. All right. The last thing I want to talk about is the chapter she wrote about develop, training your child's memory skills. Some people assume that they just naturally have bad memory. You know, we've all heard people joke about how they can't remember anybody's names. Well, the fact is that memory is a muscle that you can enhance through exercise. And so she had a chapter talking about studying or teaching your kids the memory palace, something that um, you can learn about very easily. There are lots of uh, resources out there teaching about the memory palace. But the point that the author is making is it's also a deliberate skill that you help your children develop, not something that you leave to chance and just allow them to think, oh, I just have bad memory or I'm just a very forgetful person kind of thing. But no, it's the whole point of homeschooling, I think, is to empower them to become the most capable, uh, happy adult as possible. And this is one of the life skills that I think will be really important to teach. Yeah, the memory thing I thought was interesting. I've, um, I think the book that they reference is one that we actually had our kids read. It was Moonwalking with Einstein or something or something like that. And it basically is someone who, who was just writing an article, like a journalist, writing an article about a memory contest. And then the, they basically said anybody could do it. And then they basically, over the course of a year, he learned the techniques and a and came back and came in first or second. It was, it's an interesting story. I, the, the lesson though, is not to make your kids, I don't think, I mean, not lesson. The takeaway for me is not that you need your kids to memorize. I think it was more that in this, on the spectrum of general knowledge and specific knowledge right now, you can Google anything, anytime. Right. And, and so just being able to regurgitate facts now versus the true life value, like the just in case argument for a just in case you have to do the Pythagorean theorem without access to a computer. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. She said, memorize less, but analyze more. And, and basically that today memorizing is geared not for thinking. It's not for critical thinking today. Uh, memorizing is focused on scoring well on tests. The, the idea of the memory palace and things like that, where you can actually apply it. Maybe you're, you're learning people's names or you're learning you know, something else that's uh, important to you and being able to apply it in that way, I think is, is pretty useful. Um, I liked it. It's um, maybe not the number one, one subject, but I thought it was a neat uh, addition into the, into the mix of things that she proposed. So in summary, the the book, The Learning Game, it's actually a pretty concise book. It's, I mean, 150, 200 pages, I'm not sure. It's a very short read. It's not technical, but it, it does a great job of, if you are a young parent, if you have young kids, or you're already homeschooling, this is a book that you can digest really easily and give you a lot of ideas that you can probably incorporate right away. And so that's the reason that it's, uh, it's on the list of recommendations from a parenting standpoint, not just a homeschooling standpoint, but from a parenting standpoint. I don't have anything to add. Beautiful. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you next week.
If you enjoyed this podcast and if you found this valuable, please leave a review to help others find us too. For those who prefer zapping sats, we love those too. We're on Fountain, we're on Noster, and we're on Orange Pill app. Also, I host a women's only Bitcoin podcast called Orange Hatter. And the mission of that podcast is to reach pre-coiner women. So if you know of someone in your life that you would like to introduce Bitcoin to, check it out. So Tali and I also don't have sponsors for this show. We are trying to build and run free market kids. You can check out our products at freemarketkids.com. This includes the Bitcoin mining game Hoddle Up, which is a great introduction to Bitcoin. The school edition of Hoddle Up is always available. We also have the 2024 halving edition. It's going to be super deluxe. Very excited to roll it out. It is available on presale at a 21% discount. Until next time, happy hodling.